Thanks, uh, Steve. I call him Besner. Does anybody else call him Besner? Yeah, okay, thanks. Uh, so, appreciate that. You know, uh, fun story is that uh, we uh, planted out in Northwood, but the first church that actually prayed for my wife and I and commissioned us out was the, the church that Steve had planted out in Fourth Words. Uh, out in Fourth Words. So, man, I love you. Thanks for your belief and hope in us. And so, um, man, I'm really excited to be here uh, and to, to really witness, boy, this thing called ACPN that I'd heard about before and uh, kind of really have heard about just the collaboration and the the city togetherness that you've been able to foster over the years. And so I'm really excited to, to see uh, this in person and, to, and to, uh, to, to meet, you know, some of those who have been integral to, to that. And then for the next generation of HCPN churches, because it's really exciting to hear kind of the vision laid out. And um, uh, really thank you for what you're doing in terms of being a collaborative network in a city, this is something that, as I have worked with other groups, um, that other cities and other groups are striving to to develop in themselves. And so, uh, you've been a model in a lot of ways for other cities to begin to think about how do we work across denominations and networks to be a network of networks, uh, but at the same time have a common goal and focus in the city. So, thank you. you you're, you're, you've created a phenomenon that I think that the Lord is beginning to do uh, in different places in North America. And so it's neat that I be, uh, am a part of that today. So uh, as Steve was saying, um, you know, first of all, and I, I feel like I have to say something that, thank you, Daniel, for leading us out in that way. If I was, if I was Francis Chan and I'm not, I would have been like, oh, we just need to keep praying. I just feel like we just need to keep praying, you know, but I'm not Francis Chan. Uh, just wanted to make sure you realize that I'm not him. <laughs> but uh, we should just keep praying. That was good, man. I... Uh, yeah, but uh, I was also, I was an Acts 29 reject, man, let's just, let's just get all out here, let's get it all out here, I've talked to Scott Thomas, we've reconciled, but uh, I was an Acts 29 reject, and you know, I was, uh, I was in a, uh, a group last week, um, I'm not, you know, I'm not name dropping, and outside of this group, these names mean nothing anyways, but I was with Ed Stetzer, Hugh Halter, uh, Ralph Moore, Todd Wilson, some of you guys know some of these. And we were thinking about, you know, uh, bivocational ministry and how that, that really has been how church planning movements have survived and thrived. And so we're, and we got to a point, and if you know anything about Hugh Halter, this is just him. He's kind of a, a grumpy old man, even though he's not that old, but he's grumpy. And uh, the way that the conversation was going, he just, he just stopped and he says, I, he said, I feel like somewhere, he says, before we keep talking about strategies and so on, I, I feel like we need to repent of all of the small churches that we've rejected and all of the bivocational guys, or all the people that in our church planting systems we rejected because they didn't have the same, they didn't have the leadership gifts and they didn't have the charisma and the things that we were looking for in our church planter profiles. And Man, it became a, a really powerful time where uh, we began thinking, you know, what do we do as those who, those of us who are trying to, to create the phenomenon of a church planning movement in North America where we've completely delegitimized portions of the body of Christ, you know, through our systems, unintentionally at times, but sometimes, you know, uh, intentionally. So um, I think, you know, Hugh said, man, we need to just write letters. And he was serious about this. He said, we need to write letters to every church planner that we, we rejected and all of the, um, the pressure that we've put on those that we actually passed in our assessments. Um, and so there's something about our church planting systems that I think we have to come to grips with that 
uh, it, it's taken a life of itself, you know, and I, and I, and I, I don't want to blame the systems because I feel like we need organizations and systems and those kinds of things. But I, there, there is something about how we're doing church planting in North America that is yielding a particular result, and we just have to come to grips with that. So I think, you know, now that I say that, I think that's kind of what I'm doing today, this morning, as I talk about uh, 21st century trends in uh, North American church planting uh, because I think there's something, there's a way in which we've done church planting over the last 30, 40, maybe 50 years uh, that's, that was new prior to the last 2,000 years of, uh, of uh, church movements um, that has yielded a particular result. And my gut instinct is this, that it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of at its like, limits. Um, and so I'm going to talk about this idea of entrepreneurial church planting uh, and maybe not so much deconstruct that, but kind of just lift open the hood and allow you to see the makings of how entrepreneurial church planting came about. And then to be begin to talk about some things that we're starting to see in terms of innovation, things that probably many of you are starting to do and you're wondering if it's really going to happen um, and hopefully validate some of those things. But before we do that, I want to jump into a passage of scripture in Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. You've probably preached on this yourself, and I don't mean to allegorize this passage, but like a good pastor I am... Uh, and this is uh, Jesus speaking to them. The disciples of John fast often, and sorry, this is um, Jesus being questioned. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so, the, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And then Jesus responded, uh, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them this parable. That no one tears a piece from a new garment and then puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the, new, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old, wine skin, uh, old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. And obviously, I think Jesus is talking about the new covenant here. And that's really what he's talking about is the new covenant in which he's getting ready to usher in. But I want to take that concept of that principle of him bringing in the new, the new uh, covenant and, and talk about how the life-giving message of the gospel cannot be contained and carried in expiring structures. So the freshness of the gospel, it cannot be contained in a structure, a system, a process, an organization, a network, an institution that is expiring. Um, that this needs to, in a sense, in North America specifically, we need to waken up to this fact that we have expiring systems and structures, institutions, and yet we're trying to use these institutions and organizations to perpetuate a message that's always fresh at its in, uh, inception, regardless of whether you preached it 125,000 times or it's the first time the gospel is always fresh. And there is a, um, uh, a missiologist, his name is Wilbert Schenk, and this is really how he says this that I think helps me to kind of think through this. Mission structures, think organizations, networks, systems, processes, assessments, all the stuff that you know a lot of us have gone through, uh, cannot lead the way. They must be devised in a response to a vision. We will not find the way forward by concentrating on salvaging or reviving old structures. Indeed, we ought to be prepared to evaluate them honestly and take necessary decisions to terminate those that no longer serve a valid purpose. 
we should turn our energies into discerning what the shape of mission is to be in the changed world situation and find the wineskins that can hold the new wine of God's spirit. Now, he wrote this about the international missions and how we're doing uh, international missions. And this day has dawned in North America that we have to also take this mindset of the, the wineskins that we've used to develop church planting over the last 40, 50 years specifically are starting to expire. And as Daniel led us this morning, we're starting to see how those systems, when they're expiring, puts undue, unnecessary pressure on church planters that can lead to very grievous results. Um, and uh, so it's, it's time for us to really think through some of these. So what I want to do, um, and this is less of a kind of a message or homily, this is more of a, um, I want to expand the way that we've thought about church planting in North America. And maybe again, like I said, deconstruct it a little bit for the purpose of actually hopefully improving it or maybe um, uh, seeing another, another iteration of it. But what I want to take you through is the backdrop for the modern church planting paradigm that we've seen in North America. I want, to, I want us to kind of look back over the last 30, 40 years of how we've done church planting for us to have an understanding of this phenomena that most of us are participating in. Most of us have, for me at least, brought, was brought up in uh, thinking that this is the only way that we do church planting. So the question that we're kind of looking at for the first half of my uh, talk is, what is entrepreneurial church planting and why did it emerge? So the term entrepreneurial church planting is really, it's a phenomena that's been around in North America for the last uh, half century or so. Uh, in its early years, it was, uh, it was different from denominational church planting. Denominational church planting tended to have a frontier mentality, think the you know, 18th and 19th century. Uh, this, this, these were denominations that wanted to push the boundaries of the Western frontier. And so where, you know, uh, where kind of the frontier was expanding and there were new towns being developed, there was first Presbyterian, first Methodist, first Baptist. That was in a sense kind of denominational church planting. It kind of went with population growth. It wasn't clergy driven as much, as much as it was driven by uh, frontier kind of entrepreneurial uh, leaders and they kind of went out westward. Um, so the modern uh, church planting movement in North America was really less about brand expansion. Over the last 30, 40, 50 years, it's been less about expanding a denomination. Uh, it's been more about new expressions of church. And so that's actually a really important thing for us to think about um, because the church planting that most of us have become accustomed to is a very new phenomena. Uh, at least in North America, it is. Um, prior to that, it was more about denominationalism, brand expansion. And so in a nutshell, entrepreneurial church planning started really as two things. Number one, it was a track that was parallel to denominational church planting with non-denominational means and resources to start churches. And the number two is an expression of church planning movement principles that was observed from uh, North, uh, from South, uh, South Africa uh, or South America, Africa, Asia. We were importing those principles to a North American environment. And when you put those two things together, it became what many of us have become, you know, in, immersed in over the last 40, 50 years. Um, and this phenomena of entrepreneurial church planting has existed primarily among evangelicals um, and some of the mainline churches. But if you look at mainline churches, they don't plant churches the way that we plant churches. They still have a denominational uh, approach of doing church planting. Um, but those who have kind of grown up in, you know, evangelicalism over the last 40, 50 years, this has been the primary means in which we've done church planting. 
and then denominations have kind of uh, adapted it for, for their, themselves. What I want to do is give you um, a, one stream of entrepreneurial church planting kind of as some case studies to get you familiarized with what I'm talking about, and then we're going to actually look at those a little bit deeper. But about 40 years ago, there were three movements. Uh, you're probably familiar with them, Calvary Chapel, Vineyard, Hope Chapel. Uh, they launched uh, movements in North America that has lasted, for, as far as we can see, at least one full generation. And so these were successful church planting-like movements uh, that have, you know, that still exist and are still going today. Um, this is this is kind of one stream of entrepreneurial church planting. Uh, if you know their founders, Chuck Smith, John Wimber, uh, Ralph Moore, uh, who's also at the meeting that I was talking about earlier uh, last week, uh, you know that they didn't set out to start denominations and organizations uh, in general. Their background for uh, starting these movements were, number one, they had a personal passion and conviction for evangelism and new expressions of church. And number two, they perceived a lost uh, cultural influence. The, the denominations had lost a missional effectiveness. And so this was their response to those two things. They had a personal passion for evangelism. As a matter of fact, I was with Ralph Moore last week, and he just bleeds discipleship. He's not even a, really much of a church growth guy. Uh, he's a church multiplication guy, but only because he is a discipleship guy. And so this was their passion. And, um, but they also saw that the denominations weren't getting it done. And there's a historic reason why denominations weren't uh, uh, missionally focused as they should have been. And that's because in the 60s, 70s, uh, most denominations like mine, but also the Lutherans and the Methodists and the Presbyterians, they had fully implemented the implications of the fundamentalist and modernist controversy. They were busy struggling and fighting with their seminaries and fighting with their, um, you know, the, the churches that were liberalizing. So denominations were recovering from this. They were restructuring. They were built. They were trying to rebuild their institutions, and so they really lost a lot of missional energy. And that provided an opportunity for entrepreneurial leaders to come in and missionally uh, get inside of that space. And so um, that was kind of the backdrop for uh, movements like the three that I just mentioned here. And so these entrepreneurial ministers who began evangelistic crusades, forming churches, uh, and then the networks began to exist outside of denominational structures. So things like HCPN uh, really, um, you know, these guys were the precursors to some of the things that you are experiencing and seeing right now. Some of these names you obviously know, Lyle Schaller, Rick Warren, Bob Logan. These were kind of the later guys that really began taking these ideas and then started implementing church growth principles and then made applications. But really, it was really some of these other guys that I mentioned were precursors to, to what you and I are experiencing today. Um, the Presbyterian Church, um, and I'm really flooding you with nerdy stuff. I hope that's okay. I'm, I'm, we're going somewhere with all this stuff. But the Presbyterian Church of America, back in the 80s, they took the assessment process. Some of you went through some kind of assessment process before you planted. So that was a, it was derived out of a, of a military a way of developing officers. Eventually, AT&T adapted it to develop uh, uh, their professional development track. And then education, ed, educational institutions developed it for their professional development. International mission boards took assessment models and they began developing missionary recruitment. And then uh, the PCA took that and they made it a part of their home missions board back in the 80s. And since then, most of us have adapted some kind of a recruitment assessment model of church planting. You know, there's context to everything, right? So that's what I'm trying to show you. So it was really at this point here that in the 80s, you actually begin to develop a professional entrepreneurial model of discerning church planters. 
it wasn't that they weren't praying, they were praying, but it was also that they had depended on a lot of other additional technologies in order to discern church planting. Um, and so many of the denominations and networks have really, I mean, this has become church planning for many of us. Uh, the residency models that you're talking about, these are natural outflows of this assessment model that was developed back in the 80s. And so um, if you're like me, it sounds very antithetical to my ears uh, when it comes to gospel ministry and the organic nature of church. Um, and, uh, but what happened was that we industrialized the process of church planting. We made it, we mechanized it. We made it into a system. We made it into, um, you know, you know, people say we've, we've institutionalized the church in Germany and then we enterprised it in the U S uh, so I was sharing this with the group earlier. Somebody asked me one time, what do you think about Hillsong? I said, I love Hillsong. One of the best American exports that we've ever exported. Uh, there's something about the American spirit that we, we tend to enterprise things and for good and for bad, right? And so we tend to enterprise things. And so this really became how church planting has become a bit of a, uh, you know, a professional development, entrepreneurial, industrialized model of church planting. And there have been some positives, and then there also have been some negatives that have come with this paradigm for church planting. Uh, but before I share the positive and negatives, I want to share a couple of characteristics about these, about this particular movement. Again, I, really, I feel like I'm describing you and maybe some of our forefathers uh, in, in this, but so you'll find some of these to be very uh, you know, familiar. But let me give you five observations of the entrepreneurial church planting model. Number one is it was very uh, focused on evangelism. So... Uh, not that church planning wasn't before, but church planning for a long time was about pioneer expansion. As the U.S. expanded, we needed to, you know, expand the church. During the entrepreneurial stage, it became very almost primarily focused. It was a part of us, almost like a third wave of revivalism in some ways. And so very focused on conversion and evangelism. Secondly, is that planting, uh, it, became, it was focused on planting autonomous churches. And this is where it was a little bit different from denominationalism because Again, the three movements that I mentioned earlier, they weren't starting a denomination. They were planting uh, autonomous churches in their minds. Uh, number three is it also reinvented the weekly worship gathering. And so, you know, this is, again, even the precursor to seeker-sensitive, uh, the application of foreign mission principles to North American context, you know, contextualization, those ideas. Uh, it led to their reinventing of the weekly worship gathering. I live in a city where, you know, uh, I won't mention his name, but it's been all over the news. He was one of the key, you know, leaders in actually reinventing weekly worship gatherings. And so this was a part of that stream. Uh, the fourth observation is that movement leaders were known for imparting DNA rather than being autocratic. And so the early movements of entrepreneurial church planting was less about an organizational hierarchy. It was more about uh, imparting DNA onto people uh, and not being autocratic. And then Fifthly, uh, was that it was largely reaching white people in the de-churched. So this is an interesting uh, reality that we should actually confront in entrepreneurial church planting, is it was built in a sense to, uh, to reach de-churched people. And, you know, population-wise, that population was uh, Anglo. It was white predominantly. So the system was predominantly built around, uh, now again, was it reaching you know, non-whites? Of course it was reaching non-whites, right? But the missionary approach, really the underlying theology of mission, the, the contextualization processes that were happening in the midst of entrepreneurial church planting, um, the assumed you know, uh, customer, or you know, if you're you know, Saddleback Sam, the, that person was predominantly you know, uh, Saddleback Sam, right? 
And so, um, and it was great at that. So it was great at reaching uh, those who came from mainline denominations that were dying. So when we saw the church planting boom happen in the 90s and the early 2000s, and we saw a lot of churches planted that were reaching unchurched and de-churched, you know, again, there's context to all these terms that we use nowadays. Um, that those are mainly the fringe people of mainline denominations that had, for the first time in their life, in the history of North America, probably, they had the um, permission to not identify themselves as Christian. We'd always have nominal Christians in North America. It's always been the case since, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson, like, I mean, the transcendentalists. These have always been streams in North America. Go back to George Washington, uh, the founding fathers. These were always deist you know, nominal Christian streams. It has always existed, but you never had a, a label for them up until recent. And so you could be de-churched, unchurched. Today we call them spiritual nuns, right? So that was always, that was the effective population that the entrepreneurial church planning movement was able to reach was that particular segment. And so we built our systems in a sense around that, right? Did it reach other people? Did it reach some immigrants? It did. Did it reach, you know, African-Americans? It did to a certain extent. Um, but for the most part, the systems were built for around uh, largely whites and de church. Uh, for the last 40 years, this movement has been fighting what I call the church decline narrative. And this is the church decline narrative. This is the narrative says that we used to be more Christian in the past. We need to get back to that, some form of that narrative. Uh, we used to have more people going to church. Um, we need to get back to that, you know. So there's some kind of that. That really is a, it's a denominational decline narrative. And so. Uh, you know, as a Baptist, we use that, uh, you know, we, we, we were fighting back the darkness. We're winning the culture. It's kind of this Christ versus culture kind of terminology. And this was really a, an important part of the mobilization piece of how do we actually recruit people to missions. It's because culturally we're losing or people are going to church less. And so this was actually one of the motivational factors for why Seeker Sensitive and all those kinds of things were going on because it was dependent on this day in North America where there was more of a Christian identification. So whether or not that was true or not, and history says that it wasn't really that true. We've always had a 50-50 a kind of, a, you know, a real kind of orthodox Christians and those that are always nominal. Whether that was true or not, that became the primary mobilization for how we actually mobilized people to do missions. And so, um, but I, I think the church decline narrative is becoming less and less effective. Um, I don't, I mean, for me, as somebody who, my parents grew up in Laos and they, you know, I, I was born in the States, but I essentially had an immigrant refugee upbringing here in, in the U.S. The church decline narrative doesn't resonate with, with most immigrants because, number one, they're new Americans, so they've never had, there's nothing to decline from. <laughs> there's been, for the, especially for those who are newly Christian, there isn't a, a denominational heyday that they, they think back, you know. Uh, and secondly, with millennials and Gen Z, um, the history in their mind is, this is not how they remember the past. This isn't, you know, there's so much, and whether or not these statements are true or not, there's so much wrapped up into denominationalism, denominationalism brand expansion, um, the history of race issues in the U.S. These things are wrapped up in the narrative of our denominations that for Gen Z and for millennials, this, the church decline narrative doesn't mobilize as much. So I work with church planning organizations all the time. They're asking me, how, why do we see less and less people in the church uh, planting uh, pipeline? And I think a part of that is because our mobilization rhetoric that we use is expiring. It's a part of an expiring structure um, that we've built in church planting.
So uh, let me give you three key features of the entrepreneurial model that I think are worth important uh, mentioning. Number one is that it was largely built around church, uh, the church planter selection process. And so it was built around finding the guy. This is part of the pressure that Daniel was talking about earlier. So, so much of church planning right now is built around finding the guy. Or, you know, if you, if you say you're comp- egalitarian, which let's just admit, most egalitarians, you're still kind of complementarian because most of your church planners are guys anyway. So, uh, I just made a lot of enemies, but I think a lot of my egalitarian friends would, uh, would agree with me. So, uh, functionally, you function, you look just like complementarians. Uh, so, um, Matt, you can correct me if I'm wrong, equals in the back room, so, but... You still plant a lot of men versus women. But you're looking for the guy. And um, this, is, this, is, this, is new in, uh, this is new in church planting movements. Um, it was never about the guy. And so as a matter of fact, if you study the history of church expansion in North America, at least, it was about a lot of women and men. Uh, and so they were, you know, in terms of even how Baptist churches were, you know, which is kind of probably the largest, it's definitely the largest denomination, a lot of churches started with groups kind of congregating, and then eventually they would call a pastor. Right? Uh, and for some, some reason, that, that actually led to, you know, movements. Um, and so our obsession on finding the guy, I think, is not a wrong obsession. It just, I think it's, it's one tool in the, in the toolbox of many tools. Uh, secondly, is that it was focused on leadership and organizational development. Again, part of this is because the denominations weren't developing leaders as much, and so we began adapting business principles and, and other things. Thirdly, it was uh, largely centered around strategic and contextual implementation. So how do we, it's a high vision, high mission, high uh, organizational leadership skills. Uh, we built it around a complex organization. So these are three key features of this particular model. Uh, let me give you the intended consequences. This is what we were trying to do when we were implementing this kind of model was number one, uh, we were trying to create networks and resources developed to train and support church planting. Prior to that, you know, I'm, I'm a Zenio, which means I was born in 1979. I'm not quite a millennial or an Xer, but I hear about all you Gen Xers who planted churches before Bob Logan. You're all like, oh, we, we didn't have any support. And Bob Logan's toolkit was like, you know, uh, you know, breath of fresh air. It was, you know, it was your thing. Did you guys, how many of you planted with Bob Logan's toolkit? Okay, so there's still some of you. You are all the Gen Xers. You shaved your goatees, but I know that's, that was you guys. Uh, <laughs> and so part of that was Bob Logan's toolkit was really one of those kind of pioneering resources that developed out of this particular model of church planting. Uh, it also created, a, secondly, a path towards uh, church planting that didn't require seminary and formal training. So again, denominational church planting required a lot of credentialing. And so for those who are more entrepreneurial, this actually allowed a, a few more people to play uh, in this space that didn't have uh, seminary and formal training. Now, for, for those of us who are, you know, kind of theological watchdogs, you don't like that because you, you think, you know, that, um, uh, you know, there should be a high credentialing. But the reality is that the, the, it's always been a part of the movement dynamics that um, um, theological training and seminary training was actually a follow-up to a movement. It's never been a precursor to a movement, really. Uh, and so the entrepreneurial model really began picking up on that. And then thirdly, uh, the intended consequence was it was greater collaboration across denominations. And again, a lot of things that you're experiencing here at HCPN. 
I'm going to give you three unintended, un unintended consequences of this particular model. And the first one being this, that we begin benching the local church in search of maverick church planters. And so we begin relinquishing the responsibility of a local church figuring this out. And we begin developing mission boards at this level to begin the church planter recruitment process. This was not a this was not an evil. This was not a, an intentional neglect of allowing the local churches to have the responsibility. But what happened was that when we started professionalizing church planting, uh, we began looking for the professionals, and this is one of the unintended consequences. Uh, and then, you know, fast forward 30, 40 years, we're now saying we don't have enough church planters. Now, this is where, okay, give me some, give me some room to kind of rant a little bit because you can kind of know where I'm coming from after I tell you the story. So I was meeting with the church, a pretty, fairly large church, membership of 10,000. So I was meeting with the, uh, the executive pastor, and he was, hey, he's like, it's the Chicago church. Hey, can you give me some referrals to church planters? We've run out of church planters. I'm like, bro, you got 10,000 people in your church. <laughs> you got a huge pipeline. Um, but a part of, the, part of that, again, it's a, it's a mentality shift, right? It's a mentality shift. Somewhere along the way, the professionalization of a church planter became the preferred mechanism for church planting, where, where you get to this point where you have a church of 10,000 people, and you're scratch, you're, you feel like you're, you're, uh, you're out of church planters, right? And so there, there was a specific shift that led to that, and that was an unintended consequence of the entrepreneurial model. Number two, another one is uh, Saul's armor on ethnic and immigrant church planters. So this became a very heavy, heavy learning curve for those who are not native North Americans. And for those of you who have worked uh, and continue to work and are doing work, uh, this is a, you realize that. Now Houston, from what I understand, I've only been here three times, but from Houston, what I understand is you're, you're on the cusp of becoming the most diverse city uh, in America. Uh, I planted in Toronto. I can say Toronto is more diverse than you. But in America, you know, you're uh, beyond uh, Miami and, and Chicago and, and maybe percentage-wise even New York City. Um, and you, but you begin to think, what about our best church planting churches, our best church planting networks in Houston? Do we truly reflect the diversity of our city yet? And maybe, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know. But a part of it is that our systems and processes can, can um, intrinsically discriminate who we train and raise up and send out. Um, and again, I'm not saying you need to be all things to all people. Uh, you can't do that. You can't be that. But I think you have to be okay with the fact that by the way that we set up shop, our mission structures, we intrinsically discriminate. Um, and you, you just have to be okay with that or you have to find ways to improve. Um, but one of the unintended consequences of the entrepreneurial model is that there are people who, who are new North Americans that will lead the church into the future that do not resonate with an entrepreneurial model of church planting, of leadership, of organization. And so how do we begin to think through some of these things? Um, so again, not so much a critique on the model as much as a, a, an observation, but this was a, a huge unintended one. Whereas right now we, we kind of have to retrofit training and retrofit our processes. You know, uh, you're now starting a Hispanic church planting residency, right? These are all retrofits. These aren't intentional engagement strategies as much as they are trying to fit an ethnic strategy into an existing system. And so just some things for us to think about. And number three uh, is uh, we're now discovering the limits of church growth principles like the homogenous unit principle. And so, again, uh, I'm a fan of uh, HUP, 
because it's just a, it's an observation principle. It just says that people tend to become Christian in environments where there are less cultural hurdles. Uh, I think that's true. It's a great observation. Don McGavern, when he made that observation, he warned the church that if you implement this beyond that, you will begin to racialize congregations. And so he admitted those things uh, when he put this principle out there. But we're starting to realize that church growth has its limits. We're beginning to realize that uh, some of those limits are, are God-imposed limits onto church growth. Um, and so we need to understand that when it is a God-imposed limit, that we need to um, rethink our systems and our structures in light of that. And then also, HUP, for instance, um, the, the principle that Don McGavern, when I say, you guys are all familiar with HUP, right? It's a, it's a missiological principle that says, well, I said it earlier, uh, people are likely to become Christian in environments where there are less cultural hurdles, so language, you know, um, cultural norms, those kinds of things, which is, which is predominantly true. Um, but the reality is that HUP still holds even in an ethnic environment, multi-ethnic environment, because here's the reality with Gen Z. The only time that they'll notice diversity is when they walk into a room when there isn't diversity. And so there's going to be there's going to be a there's going to be there's going to be a flip on kind of the HUP and that actually I really don't like you because you're not a diverse group which is kind of weird right uh, and I'm not saying that that should be the case but I'm just saying that is kind of how the cultural norm is today right and so um, this principle still holds it just holds in a different way but we're discovering that the church growth principles that we've attached to it are beginning to expire um, and so what does that mean for this particular model? Uh, the greatest value of the entrepreneurial model was this. It was always learning. The posture was always learning, especially uh, honoring traditions. Um, it's probably the, the greatest value in this particular model is that uh, it was eager to, to change and to be molded and to improve and self-critique. And so from that perspective, uh, this particular model, this adaptation or contextualization of organizational principles to mission, I think is still one that we need to hold on to and really need to grow. Um, but we have to realize that we're embarking, this is, we're, we're about a generation into this particular model. And we're probably, we're probably seeing some of it expire, you know. Um, and so what is it, uh, that it that we need to begin thinking about on the horizon? Uh, Paul Sappho, who's a He's a tech guy out in uh, uh, San Jose. He wrote um, a couple of books on kind of just changing economies. And he said that 2008 was a, was a very important time for the, um, the economic economy in North America, where he says, you know, that's the recession and all. He said 2008 really became a watershed uh, year for the economy where you, there's a switch from a consumer, uh, consumer economy. Again, this, he's not a believer. He's not even talking about the church. But there is a switch from the consumer economy to the creator economy. And so his example is, like, you know, there was kind of this big value on Walmart and big box stores. And some, something about the 2008 uh, market crash really gave credence, validation, um, verification to the Ubers and the uh, Airbnbs and the Etsy's of the world. You go from a consumer, hey, I created this great thing, you come and experience it with me, to environments where you say, no, you create whatever it is that you want to do. And I think there's something about that in the church that we have to really uh, grapple with, that we have seen the extent of, you know, when I say consumer, I don't mean it in the pejorative sense, the, but the come and see kind of uh, paradigm, to now come and create. And I think that we may be stepping into an age where we have to learn how to build 
uh, a wineskin where we're actually inviting people to come and create. Um, so let me give you three trends that we're seeing among church planning organizations where, uh, so, you know, not necessarily they're building around these new principles of, you know, a creative economy, but uh, they're actually kind of, you know, beginning to develop um, the um, uh, new ways forward. Uh, you know, again, these are probably very familiar to you. Uh, number one is the increase of boutique networks. These are specialty networks, you know, um, college church planting, um, planting churches on military bases. Um, these are boutique, boutique networks that are really emerging, that are trying to be innovative, that they're going beyond just kind of the typical uh, systems-oriented way of church planting. Number two is a shift of vision and training towards church multiplication principles. Uh, there's a lot that goes behind this particular uh, shift, um, but the shift towards church multiplication uh, in some ways is a purposeful shift away from just church growth. Um, that uh, church growth, you know, typically is let's grow a congregation to church multiplication, which says regardless of whether or not the congregation grows, we're planting, we're, we're establishing new works, those kinds of things. Uh, and then thirdly is replanting and revitalization. This has always been with us, but there's been a renewed interest in that, realizing that uh, if you're not replanting or revitalizing, that you know, it's kind of a front door, back door type thing. So, um, and then uh, let me give you five trends among church planners that we're seeing right now. So these are really kind of trends that as uh, organizations are assessing and discovering, you know, church planter discovery, they're realizing that they're really having a focus on, on, on these five things. Number one is balancing engagement versus exposure. And this is a grid system that I think it might help you understand. Engagement is really kind of uh, having deep uh, spiritual formative conversations, interactions. It's about meaningful interaction. Exposure is about this widespread kind of like mass connection, right? And so training church planters between this particular grid. So if you're high exposure, low engagement, um, you know, that could be, you know, again, I'm, these categories are just way overly stereotyped. But if you're super seeker sensitive, you would be considered like high exposure, low engagement. Um, you know, if you're, you know, super kind of like discipleship one-on-one -on -one oriented, that's high engagement, low exposure. And so learning how to balance this kind of training philosophy paradigm in your training is huge uh, as we're, we're beginning to embark on kind of new ways to think about the future. Number two is uh, multi-ethnic. Um, is this a trend? Is it a thing? Is it a fad? Well, I was explaining to the network leaders group this morning, back in the 50s and 60s, we used to use this term. I wasn't born yet, so it wasn't me, but the generation before us. They used to use a term called integrated churches because it was a black and white thing. So do you go to an integrated church? Uh, now, it's kind of crazy today. You wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say, do you go to an integrated church? We use multi-ethnic church, but um, so... The reality is I think multi-ethnic church is kind of like that term integrated church. It's useful now. It'll become probably less and less useful when the norms of multi-ethnicity becomes more and more of a thing. Um, so let's say case in point. Uh, hopefully I don't offend people in the room, but if you're a white person planting a church in any given city, you better not say I'm planting a white church. I mean, you can if you want to, but I'm just saying uh, you're probably saying you're planting a multi-ethnic church. Uh, now, you're in the rural areas, you know, admittedly, you know, you, know, you, you plant in the neighborhood that you're planting in. Uh, but, again, that tension, right? That tension, that's a very, that, that's a shift that's happening in our culture. Uh, 
And so, um, you know, I think African-Americans, they might still be able to, you might still be able to get away with, you know, I'm planting African-American church. But to be honest with you, African-American church planters that I know, very few of them are actually saying we're planting, you know, black church. Uh, they're planting multi-ethnic churches. And so I think 20, 30 years from now, we'll get to a point where the term multi-ethnic, multi-ethnic was invented back in the 90s to, to, to reflect the complexity that immigration has brought to North America. Because it used to be a binary issue. Integration was binary. It was black and white. Multi-ethnicity uh, threw into the mix this, this new nuance of immigrants that, uh, you know, is fast growing. Did you know, by, by, by the way, the fastest growing demographic in North America are the fastest growth rate in North America are Asian women? So and the fastest growing population is uh, Hispanics and Latinos, but the rate of growth is Asian women. So I'm complementarian. I have to deal with that. But uh, the reality is that uh, if you marginalize one of the fastest growing uh, groups, and you know, it makes you have to think about these things, right? It forces you to think about the future uh, differently. Uh, 2043 is the first time where we won't have a majority race in North America. These things mean something. Um, the tensions and the, you know, I love messing with people. I love throwing out terms like microaggression and, you know, I don't use the term white privilege, but I like the way certain people cringe or I, all that stuff is a shift in the cultural atmosphere indicating something, right? You got to be much more nuanced. Like I, I get annoyed by my friends who use the term white privilege. I don't think it's used fairly. You know, I, you know, as somebody who's a minority, a person of color, I don't think the way that it's being used is, is very helpful all the time. I think until, especially as a church, until you theologically nuanced a phenomena, you should be very wary of using a particular concept. So um, with that being said, there are systems in place that discriminate. And so we have to deal with those things and what you see in culture and uh, um, what we see happening around us is reflective of that. 2043 or whatever that date's going to be is, is a significant time that we need to be thinking about. I kind of say 2050. 2050 is important because for the most part, baby boomers are dead, okay? Uh, Gen Xers, some of you are almost dead or you're retired. Uh, and then millennials are finally, all you millennials who gripe, you're finally in charge in 2050. So... Let's see if you can fix this thing you've been complaining about. Uh, and by 2050, you got a completely new generation that we know nothing about. You need to start thinking innovatively, right? So plan for the future. I, I, I don't know about, I'll show this chart at the end, but um, there's some reasons why we need to start thinking about 2050. And then uh, thirdly is uh, housing, church planning, internships, and residencies. Um, everybody doing it, not just uh, the Clear Creeks and the, I don't know if Lakewood has one, I'm guessing Lakewood doesn't have one, <laughs> not just the large churches, uh, but every church needs to have an internship residency program, right? Because what it just means is that you're developing disciples who know the mission of God, who know how to plant churches. Every church should be about that. Uh, fourthly is belong to one or more networks, including denominations, and this is just really the trend. This is just, uh, and I think this is a good thing is because we're actually, we will, it's, it's not a good thing when you take money from everybody, church planners, just to let you know, you can't take money from every organization that offers it to you. There's consequences that come with that. There's taxes that you have to pay. Uh, <laughs> but um, when you are much more willing to, to work across the board, I think that indicates a, a kingdom unity that we've missed for at least a couple of decades. And then lastly is, uh, 
a return to a more uh, team and flat leadership model. Uh, and this is really, really, uh, you know, it's, it's not become super popular yet. Uh, but there are some shifts that are happening, even in large churches that are indicating uh, the need for flatter models. Like, how many of you are still senior pastors in your church? Like, you use the term senior pastor. One, two, and you guys are older, by the way. <laughs> the subtle switch to lead pastor is a significant shift. Because with that language is I'm, I'm, I'm an equal among many, right? I'm the lead pastor in vision and preaching, but he's a, he or she's the lead pastor over, uh, you know, uh, execution, ministry, right? And so even, even though, you know, we still use kind of CEO-type models of leadership in large churches, the, there's a signaling of a flatter, the need for a flatter leadership in a team model. And so... Um, and I don't know any church planner, to be honest with you. Maybe they exist. I don't know them. I don't know any church planner that plants them as themselves as a senior uh, church uh, pastor anymore. Um, you know, lead pastor is still being used. But again, to me, that signals a, a need for a team or a flat leadership model. So um, those are some things I want to share with you on nerdy stuff. But I hope it gives you context for uh, as you continue to grow as a network uh, and think about the future. I want to show you one last chart, and then I'll be done here. Um, is um, this idea of a North American church planting capacity. And really the capacity uh, that I'm talking about is just really what, the amount of church plant activity that we need to do in order to keep up with just basic population growth. So we grow at about, uh, U.S. grows at about 2.7 million a year. It'll continue to increase. We'll get to a point where it's actually growing close to 5 to 7 million a year before 2050. So just think about that, 2.7 million um, uh, people are being added to the population every year. So um, Hartford Institute, probably more, the most authoritative in terms of counting congregations. There are other studies out there. Duke University put one out there, but I, I like to use Hartford because theirs tend to be uh, more statistically accurate. They, proje they projected back in 2010 that there were 324,000 religious congregations. This would include mosques, temples, every, you know, all of that included. So if you just count Christian congregations, maybe 310, 312,000 um, Christian, Orthodox, Protestant uh, churches. Population back in 2010, 309. Today is 325, closer to 326 today. Uh, so the ratio is about one church to every thousand. If we projected that out to 2050, the most modest estimate that the U.S. Census puts out is that given population growth at its current rate and the immigration rates, if you take the lowest rate, will be about 400 million as a nation by 2050. If we kept the same uh, population, uh, rate, church to population ratio at one to a thousand, between uh, those 40 years, we would have needed to plant 76,000 more churches on average, that's netting 1,900 churches a year. The best numbers that we have thus far in terms of how many churches we net per year, we plant 4,000, close 3,700. That's why, you know, replant and revitalization is important. We net 300 churches a year right now. We're vastly far behind population growth. Huge. Um, William Frey's book, uh, Diversity Explosion, he's uh, he's a... Uh, the Brookings Institute leading demographer actually uh, was one of his uh, students back at University of Michigan. He wrote a book called Diversity Explosion. White population is um, slowly growing. It's tapering off. Uh, whites tend to have less children. 
It's the, it's the oldest demographic group. Um, and the Hispanics, obviously, the fastest, largest number grown right now. Asians are the fastest percentage-wise, grown at 11% per year. Asians are taking over. <laughs> America's... <laughs> I am weary, again, I feel like this is a fun group so I can say these kinds of things. I'm weary of using white privilege because one day I will become the privileged class in, in, in America. <laughs> and I don't know if I want that responsibility, y'all. Uh, but uh, so, so it's growing in a way that we don't, we don't quite understand yet. The diversity, I was just sharing with this table over here. That did you know that the largest population growth in uh, places like Oklahoma and Missouri are Asians? They're moving to the Sun Belt. So, uh, my wife is from uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina, Asian rednecks. When I, when I went to visit her, she said, hey, can I get you a sandwich? Uh, <laughs> and so, this is, the, this is the new rural population, by the way, my in-laws. <laughs> That's a scary thought. Uh, so... Every year, we're not planting 1,900 churches that understands this reality. We're increasing the burden for the next generation. So I just want to encourage you as you continue to, to, to collaborate and to congregate as a network to, to allow this to be a missional adventure opportunity for you because uh, there's a lot of work that we need to do. And... Uh, and I hope that every church that we plant here grows and is evangelistically reaching out. But the reality is that if we insist on an entrepreneurial, professional uh, clergy system in church planting, um, we'll, never, we'll never reach capacity. And so we need to innovate and we need to begin thinking through uh, the shift in economy from an industrial economy. Like nobody, you know, like... I think about like, uh, what's his name, Tesla, uh, Elon Musk. He does not think from an industrial point of view. But he is, what they're doing is the future of, uh, you know, uh, industrialization or, or manufacturing. He's, you know, once, if, once Elon gets into manufacturing, I don't know if he will, but he will completely disrupt, uh, you know, all the industries. And so there's, some, there's a shift, and a similar shift, I think, uh, in terms of church planting that uh, we have seen kind of the end of industrialized processes and we need to think more innovatively. And so 21st century trends, uh, they don't tell us where we're going, but I just I want to share this with you all uh, because I think whatever you're doing and whatever you're innovating um, through HCPN, uh, that you do it in light of uh, trying to help the next generation, uh, setting them up uh, for, for a chance, for, for a chance to really reach um, the nations. And let me, let me kind of end with this. And I told Chad, I was like, I think they, I'm thinking about changing my message, but I won't. But in terms of this whole diversity thing, I, I think it's an important thing. I don't want to keep pressing race, ethnicity, and all that stuff. But you all are in Houston. And I think you realize that you're in Houston, but I don't think you realize that you're in Houston. <laughs> and so, um, you, know, I, <clears throat> you, know how, you know how white missionaries used to sit in a room, get a whiteboard, and they would begin to think, how do we reach Asians, Africans, Hispanic people? And I literally know Asians, Hispanic, and African people. They sit in a room, they ask themselves, how do we reach white people? And this is the shift that has happened in North America. And if we aren't attuning our systems, our processes, our visions, our, our mobilization rhetoric to reflect these realities, you will all, you, you'll be operating out of an expired 
system and its structure. And so I want to challenge you in these ways uh, because I do believe that cities like uh, Houston will lead the future in North America because you're reflecting that already. So I'd love to pray for you all. And then, Chad, you can close us off. So, Father, thanks for this time. Uh, thank you for this group, what you're doing through them. Uh, thank you for um, the fame of Jesus that they continue to elevate uh, in this city. I pray that you would make us creative, help us to think about not just decline, but missional opportunities.